Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, calls for police to be defunded continue, and a motion is being brought forward at the Police Services Board meeting for a 20% spending cut, asking what that's going to look like. Also, a petition launched online that's asking Toronto City Council to rename Dundas Street because of the history of the person who it's named after. And the Liberal government did not get support of opposition parties yesterday for updating the rules for CERB. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We uh, want to talk about the uh, Police Service Board meeting, which is coming up. This was a scheduled meeting, of course, but uh, the agenda is full, and uh, a good deal of the time, I would suspect, is going to be discussing uh, what happened with the report that uh, we have been talking about over the last couple of days, and that is a, a report entitled Pride in Hamilton, an independent review into the events surrounding Hamilton Pride 2019. It's, of course, uh, authored by Scott Bergman uh, from the law firm of Cooper, Sadler, Shime, and Bergman in Toronto. Uh, he will be there, apparently, today uh, to talk about this. And, uh, by the way, Mr. Bergman will be on our program tomorrow morning uh, to talk about uh, the report itself and the reaction that he's getting to it. But there is also another port- report that's coming out, too, uh, that we also talked about earlier in the week from the Internal Investigation in Response to Complaints. Uh, this was the, the Office of Independent Police Review Director. Both reports giving very, very different accounts and opinions as to what happened uh, during Pride Week and specifically at uh, the Pride uh, Festival, which was going on at Gage Park. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Lloyd Ferguson. Now, Lloyd, of course, is a city councillor for Ward 12 in Ancaster, uh, a former chair of the Police Services Board. He no longer sits on that board, but I uh, wanted to bring him on to give us some perspective on some of the, not just the report itself, but uh, some of the things that are being said about police and about the report itself. Uh, Lloyd, thank you for uh, taking some time with us on a very busy day today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. And I'm glad you made it clear that I'm no longer on the board. I spent um, five years on there, four years as chair. And um, I've moved on to other things now, but uh, it's an interesting situation they're in right now. Have you had a chance to read the report from uh, Mr. Bergman? I, yeah, I looked through the executive summary, and I'm, mm-hmm. of course, following all the media coverage on it, too. Sure. But it's, uh, it, I, it, you know, two entirely different positions between the OIPRD and um, the outside counsel who wrote this report. And um, it puts the board in a difficult spot because now they've got conflicting reports, and what should you do? And uh, That'll be, I assume, an interesting discussion today, but they did pay $500,000 for this report. That did puzzle me when they decided to do that. But uh, So how can they not take the recommendation? So it should be an interesting day. You've uh, you've had uh, no shortage of controversy when you were the chair. I don't mean you specifically. Well, you specifically, I guess. That goes with the job, I, th- I suppose, Lloyd. But there has always been and probably always will be uh, some sort of conflict and controversy about police budgets, about how much money they're getting and how they allocate that. How did you address that when you were the chair? Well, uh, as you know, uh, you've called me. I'm known as Fugle Fergie around the council chambers. I'm, it's my culture. I grew up in a private sector business where, you had a relentless quest for cost reduction, and I carried that into my duties as the chair. And I was, I was proud that we brought in uh, tax increases or budget increases right, right around the, the consumer price index while I was there. I just sorted that out with the chief and the finance staff before we, we went public with it. And uh, uh, there's always that tension with police, public safety versus cost, and, and that's i said it numerous times in your show, as an elected person, we do that every day. We try to strike balance and where's the right way to go. And uh, so there's always this demand for more staff from from uh, the police leadership versus the taxpayer and the impact it has on him. And, um, you know, 
you know, we, we had that same pressure this year where uh, a number of new officers were asked for again. And uh, so it's, it's all striking balance. And, and you know, um, they, they did cut it back, uh, particularly with the police college shut down. They couldn't even hire more officers right now. You couldn't train them. And so um, it's a difficult spot to be in. And I enjoyed it. It was an interesting experience. Uh, the toughest part was that uh, the bad guys could always say whatever they want, but we were always handcuffed until investigations were complete. And uh, so sometimes the public was getting misleading information or incorrect information. There's nothing you could do about it. But uh, no, it was a good time, and uh, and I enjoyed the experience. Uh, controversy about chiefs of police, again, just as the chair of the police services board is always going to be in somebody's crosshairs, so also is the chief of police. Uh, and you've worked with a couple of them over the, your five years there. Uh, in that time, uh, there's been a great deal of criticism leveled against Chief Gert uh, about uh, what he has said, what he has done, what, what some people would suggest has not done. How do you respond to that? Well, I could tell you, uh, uh, I worked with Eric for years, and and that never he's probably one of the most honest people I've ever met. He he, he never candy coats things, he never exaggerates things, he just gives it to you straight. And uh, that's one of his biggest assets I saw. And uh, not that uh, Glenn didn't. But, uh, you know, Eric was a softer, more kinder, uh, gentler person. That's just his personality. But he, I watched him in situations where he had to take tough, tough stands. He did it then. So I have the utmost respect for Eric, I think. I, I, I believe what he tells me because that's his character. And uh, so I'll, I'll stand behind him uh, every day of the week if I have to, to in order to support his leadership. Because... Um, it's always easy. I think I was quoted saying this in the Spectator uh, this morning. It's always easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. And when you're leaders, you have to make decisions on the go. And I hear people on your show all the time uh, being critics of, of what happened. But you make the best decisions you can at the time based on the information in front of you. And Eric has over 30 years of experience in doing that as a police officer. He's a lifelong employee of the Hamilton Police Service. And, and quite frankly, we're lucky to have him. The insinuation, and, and I don't think I'm being too far over the top here, though, in, in uh, Bergman's report, uh, seems to indicate, though, that uh, that some of the chief's uh, words and some of the chief's actions were part of the problem, not part of the solution. Okay, and, and I've also heard that maybe the OIPRD uh, may be biased towards police, too. But, you know, I don't know Scott. I've never met him before, never heard of him before. Uh, I did go online and look at his his bio uh, on his webpage and it looks like he's a criminal lawyer is his expertise uh, he's um, defended criminals most of the time and and so you know does a person who's constantly in court um, challenging police uh, do they not have their own bias and so that's why i think it's the, it's the job of the hamilton police services board to balance the two and 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 try to understand that both are trying to say when when you hire an outside investigator do they have to follow the exact same rules that uh, a police do which is you know primarily verifying what witnesses are telling you don't know but uh, i also read on scott's bio that uh, he was a co-counsel i believe in a case against the hamilton police services board um, the date on it because i looked at this morning at the um, the actual case uh, in 2007 where um, he represented a person who had been convicted of a number of crimes um, and, and took a right to the Supreme Court. 
And, and so does a person with that kind of background have personal bias? In fact, is it a conflict of interest? I, I, I hope the police services does that. And I fully understand why cops watching cops is questionable. But when you've got a person who's, who's constantly challenging police and constantly trying to, uh, you know, persuade them in a different direction when they're witnesses on a, on a criminal trial, does that person become biased too? So I, I don't play, you know, I fully respect he's a lawyer. I fully respect he's a professional. But I also suspect maybe there's a little bit of personal bias there, and you can't help that. The same as it's, as it's suggested that, you know, the police have personal bias too. And uh, But that's the responsibility of the board members and elected people to try to weigh that and try to come up with the, the right solution. So where do you find this? Do you split this down the middle? I mean, let's talk about the assertions in, in both reports then, Lloyd, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this one because they're both pretty extensive reports. Uh, but two wildly different versions of how police were deployed, uh, their attitude, etc., cetera, uh, between these two reports. How do you, if, if you had to make this decision, and, you know, you're not on the board anymore, but, I mean, this is, this is what these people are charged with today. Uh, they're going to have to do something about this uh, and, and make some determination. Uh, as to which one is of these versions is right. And I understand that, you know, t- take 10 people out and, and who said they witnessed any given event, you're probably going to get eight or nine different versions of that from those people. We get that. But this is wildly different from, you know, one accusation of inept to say, no, they did everything according to Hoyle. I know. I know. And and it's not easy. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't understand that whole LBGT community. I'll be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying hard to learn about it. I know that uh, I think they've come a long ways uh, in their advocacy. Uh, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, if you saw people of the same gender holding hands on the street, you got stares. Now nobody cares anymore. And, and so that has come a long ways. But also, uh, you know, I watched with interest when they would go down and try to confront the yellow vesters on the city hall forecourt. Well, you're, you're provoking things. If they didn't go there, the yellow busters would probably just leave. And and so um, wh- why do they do that? So I'm trying to understand this and balance it. And the police try so hard to be neutral and keep the peace. And I'm getting, you know, a lot of, uh, and we always have to be careful about special interest people, but I'm probably getting 50 emails a, a day and probably two to three phone calls a day telling us to defund police. This seems to be a worldwide movement now. Well, let's talk and, about that. Yeah, and so we got to be so careful that we don't fall into this trap of following these special interest groups because public safety is so important to the public, in my view. I think that, you know, I, I tell the people, they call me on the phone, so you're in your home, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, there's someone pounding fiercely at your door, or there's you, you hear an invader in your home, could have a weapon, and you dial 911, you expect police to be there and provide that public safety to you. What are you going to do if you defund them? How are you going to handle that? And and so I'm not sure it's thought through. I understand that uh, what happened in Minneapolis is terrible. I get that. And and, uh, and and But to go that far to defund police, I'm just not on for. I mean, sure, control their costs, limit the number of police officers. They need extra every year, if any. And, and 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 always question that and question it hard, but 
But yeah. there's a there's an attitude out there, Lloyd. And uh, uh, well, I'll give you an example. Sarah Jama, who's of course a well-known black organizer and activist in this area, uh, was quoted in one of the stories that was published today that says police have been harmful and continue to be harmful in our communities. As a former chair of the police services board, how do you respond to a statement like that? I just don't agree with it. I, I think that our police work very hard every day. I think that they they try to have balance. You know, let's go back to the the, the four quarter city hall. They just kept the peace out there. They never took sides, and um, and you know if somebody was causing trouble, they would arrest them. But uh, you know they they fully respect the right of people to protest on both sides of an issue, and it's not easy to do that. And it, there's there's bad cops, same as there's bad you know radio announcers and and, and politicians. And, and politicians, yeah, absolutely. I know, I mentioned that on my commentary at 8.10 this morning. I mean, this is, when people say systemic racism, I, I mean, there's elements of that just about every place, sadly. Uh, and we got to be honest about that. And we can't just focus on this. But the other element to this, too, is uh, is one of your colleagues, of course, Chad Collins, who is uh, still on the police services board, uh, we're told is going to bring a motion forward at this uh, meeting today uh, about looking at a 20% cut in the police budget. Uh, now, I... I share your concern when any political body in this particular case the services board or whomever just arbitrarily says we're going to cut this because you have to know where the cuts are going to be and they're going to have the impact and there's going to be an impact on service levels now to that point when you were the chairman and sat on that board for five years was there ever a discussion that maybe police were doing too much and some of that work should have been uh, should have been siphoned off to to other agencies for instance they talk about mental healthers which by the way they're already doing with the coast program but but what does what does that look like, and what kind of police service do we have in this community if we were to do something like that? Did well, that frankly, did that discussion happen? We never had a situation where there is a, a continuous lobby to uh, defund police, and and so I think Chad has made a brilliant move uh, to ask for it. What, what's it look like? He's not asking us to do it. He says, so if we cut twenty percent of the budget, what's it mean? Does that mean your response time to? Uh, uh, a code one situation where there's a Vader in the house with a weapon that you're going to say, sorry, can't come. And, and, and so just the public understands what a 20% cut would look like. And, um, and, and so I believe that's where Chad's going. And I think that's a fair thing to do so we can educate the public and tell them, yeah, if you want the budget cut by 20%, here's the impact that'll happen and get the reaction and, and, uh, back from the community of what they'd like us to do. And, and I guess that's the intent of the report, and we'll see some, what some of those numbers look like. But I'm wondering if the conversation is happening or has ever happened uh, between some of these other support agencies and police to suggest, okay, if we're going to say, okay, the police aren't going to do that anymore, can those other organizations take up the slack? Well, I'll go back to the experience of home invasion. What's a mental health worker going to do at 2 o'clock in the morning with someone with a weapon in your house? And, and that's why the Coast Program and the, and the um, Rapid Response Units work so well, because it's a combination of a police officer and a mental health worker in the same cruiser to respond to mental health situations. The officer has to de-escalate and then turns it over to the mental health worker to get help to that particular individual. And, and that's why we brought the program on. I, I don't know what it's at now, but we had seven of those teams uh, working when I was the chair. And, and you know, it resulted in about a... It's a while ago now, but it was around a 50% reduction in the admittance of people with mental health issues being brought to the emergency room of St. Joseph's, who handled the mental health. 
that mental health worker can diagnose them on the spot, on the scene, and take them to the right location at that time. And so there was a significant uh, reduction, not only cost, but congestion in emergency rooms. And it's, it's embarrassing for a person to be sitting there in the emergency room with handcuffs on and uh, waiting to be seen by a professional. And, and we know that program's in place. Look, at i got a minute left here, Lloyd, and there's one point I really want to address, and I want to give you a, an opportunity to, to address that. Uh, because we've heard from uh, members of the black community, we've heard from members of the LGBTQ community, there is a perception, and you may agree or disagree with it, a perception that uh, that police are their enemy, not their friend, uh, which is terrible for anybody in this community to feel that way. Uh, how do you address that? How do you try to uh, uh, assuage those those concerns? Because perception is reality to, to people, and if, it's, if they're feeling it, and if they see it, even one example of it that perpetuates that feeling, something's got to be done. What, what do we do? Collaboration always, well, generally will solve that problem. You, you have the police meet on a regular basis with the Black Lives Matter people, understand what their issues are, and put in place the necessary training to deal with that if, if both parties agree this is a solution. And the same with the LBGTQ community. I mean, you're, you're going to get some radicals on both sides, but I think for the most part, uh, I, I know a lot of people of color, and they're wonderful people. And I have some of them as friends. Uh, and I'm sure you're going to get radicals in the LBGTQ community too, but most of them are sensible and reasonable people. And, and do that collaboration with them on a regular basis because uh, collective intelligence is a powerful tool and be able to use that information to change the way we deal do we do things to make it uh, to bring that trust back I guess is the right word former uh, police services board chair Lloyd Ferguson Ancaster counselor Lloyd thanks as always for the time really appreciate it anytime Bill bye-bye you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML a petition has now emerged online that has garnered support in Toronto to rename Dundas Street uh, due to its colonial ties and uh, problematic history. Now, this is not a new concept. Uh, we've been having the debate about uh, iconic figures uh, who have had statues erected in their honor in the past uh, who have had those statues torn down simply because we know more about their history. Uh, attitudes have changed. Uh, Robert E. Lee, of course, uh, the leader of the Confederate Army during the Civil War, <laughs> go to a number of major cities in the southern United States, you'd see a number of different statues about Robert E. Lee. Many of those have come down. The Confederate flag is in the news again today because NASCAR doesn't want that there anymore. Uh, in this country, we are not immune to it. There has been a great deal of debate over the last number of years about the statues of Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first prime minister. And uh, and books have been written about uh, Macdonald and Cartier and, and the work they did to create Canada uh, in 1867. But, as we now know, there is another side to John, John A. Macdonald, and that, of course, was during his time as prime minister, uh, where he was the architect of the residential school system, led starvation tactics against indigenous people, and, uh, quite frankly, was uh, guilty of genocide in a number of different areas in, in his time. So those statues in many places have come down. There's a petition in Montreal right now to have the statue of McDonald torn down. Uh, in, in the U.K. right now, there's a move ahead to, uh, this is over at, at uh, Oxford University, uh, to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes, a P of the Rhodes Scholar, of course. Uh, he was an architect of apartheid, and they want him down and out. And here, as we mentioned, uh, Dundas Street and also the name of the town of Dundas. Uh, there's a great deal of concern about that and some discussion going on. Uh, I would imagine an awful lot of people who live in Dundas probably don't even know that it's named after a gentleman named Henry Dundas, uh, who, by the way, uh, was uh, one of the folks who was trying to delay the abolition of slavery in the British Empire while others were moving in that direction. 
And I believe there's a statue of him in Edinburgh, Scotland. I mean, we were over there a couple of years ago, and I'm pretty sure that there is one to Henry Dundas. But anyway, because of that, there is a discussion about not just Dundas Street in Toronto, but about uh, the name Dundas in particular and trying to honor somebody who was actually an advocate for apartheid. Uh, Global News' uh, Dave Woodard had this report. Dundas Street is named after Henry Dundas, a Scottish politician who at the turn of the 18th century fought against the abolition of slavery. Andrew Lockheed, who launched the petition, says it's just the latest street that's being looked at. Dundas Street is not the only uh, street that people have called for renaming. Jarvis and Peter Streets, both named after slave owners, have also been targeted in the past. But if Dundas Street is renamed, what should we call it? I really think that this should be a consultative process, and I believe it should strongly involve uh, black-led historical societies and organizations. Dave Woodard, Global News. Thanks, Dave, for that report. I want to bring Emil Joseph into the conversation. Uh, Emil, of course, is an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at McMaster University. Emil, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's, let's have this discussion. By the way, the, the latter part of that report, they said, well, if we change it, what's it going to be? I don't think that's the, the important part of the discussion. It's that that name is there right now and, and the indications and the implications of that. Uh, what's your read on the, on the McDonald's situation and the Dundas situation? Uh, are those, well, the statues, the names themselves are a legacy to those people, but we're not telling the whole story of that legacy, are we? Um, I think it's an important part of a larger conversation about how we talk about history. Um, and how we tell our own stories. Um, and when we do that, how we subjugate other stories uh, and erase those or omit them. You know, when you think about Dundas as the town, um, it would be hard to not think about all of these other towns and these other streets that have been implicated in colonial nation-building projects. Uh, you know, you could... You could think about renaming a place like Dundas to uh, something around Coots, as it was before. Uh, but mm -hmm. Thomas Coote himself was, uh, you know, a British officer. You can think about, um, who else, like John Graves Simcoe, um, who people have also thought about a particular violent history associated with John Graves um, and removing his name from a number of things. But then you would have to think about Bathurst, and yeah, and Jarvis, like he, he said. Um, I think about Dundas in particular, how deeply ingrained some of these histories are and their erasures. So Hat Street, in particular, in Dundas, mm -hmm. named after Samuel Hat, uh, who bought slaves from Joseph Brandt, the Mohawk uh, chief. Um, there's... Benjamin Drew wrote in, uh, a book years and years and years ago about some history of black settlers and black slaves at chattel slavery in in Ontario. And uh, there's a story of Sophia Pooley, um, who uh, Joseph Brandt sold to Samuel Hatt. Um, and so that kind of stuff is underneath our feet, um, around us every day. And to have these conversations, I think it's important to think about the kinds of stories we tell and how they're baked into our existence. You know, Edward Said says that every empire told uh, its own story of itself as a, a bringer of education and liberation without um, drawing too much attention to plunder and conquest. 
there's a, the old famous quote, which I think Churchill is paraphrasing when, when Judge Older one that said, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. Uh, yeah. the victors write the history, uh, but it's, it's a very tilted version of that history. And, and that's what we've been taught in schools for how many generations now, Emil? Um, oh, too many, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, uh, I teach a course on race, racism, racialization and colonialism in Canada. And there's a, an assignment where um, students watch the film Speakers for the Dead. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an NFC film. But it's about the history of Priceville, Ontario, mm-hmm. which was historically a black settlement. Um, and that history was actively erased. And every year, uh, in every one of the assignments, the students are surprised. When they read about Hamilton and its uh, being traditional territories for Mississauga and Haudenosaunee nations, uh, when they read about the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement, they convey surprise. They hadn't learned it before. It wasn't baked into the history that they were taught in elementary schools or in high school. How do we rationalize this? I mean, many people, I guess, don't have much of a problem at all rationalizing it because you've heard the argument, Emil, oftentimes, like, yeah, that was then, this is now. Of course, we know now that what they did was evil and it was bad and it was, you know, just a terrible situation. But it was the norm back then. So can you really damn them for that? Yeah, I think it's about uh, a how. So how do we talk about these histories in ways that are... um, not ones that tell only the shiny story. An example would be the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. They were um, the Toronto Asylum for the Insane. Their address was infamous. They actually changed the number from 999 Queen Street West to Mm -hmm. 1001 years ago to try to distance themselves from the stigma. But there was a movement to remove the wall. It was a patient-built wall. They used patients for labor free labor. And what they did, there was an initiative that was that involved community members, people with lived experience of mental health issues attached to some of those histories who advocated for the installation of plaques. And the plaques remembered some of the laborers and their history. You could go and take a tour around the patient-built wall and learn more about this history. They advocated not for taking the wall down but to remember it and speak about it and learn about it differently. I think there's um, a conversation to be had around taking down the memorials and the symbols that do us harm by seeing them and having a balance between how then do we educate in a different way? How do we learn and speak and write about history in a way that is undoing the embedded systemic racism that we have in education and history. How how difficult would that be? Uh, I mean, if, if you leave a monument up, uh, let's use the example of Dundas, I guess, then, Emil. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that a constant reminder that, uh, that the, you know, that this guy was a colonialist, or is this a constant reminder that, uh, that he created, you know, a, a situation here where apartheid, in his mind, was going to be the norm for as far as he could possibly see into the future? I mean, does, does keeping that monument there remind us about his, 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 the bad side of it and the things he did, as well as the things that we're supposed to be giving them credit for, for the, the nation building, for instance, in the John A. McDonald situation? Yeah, I think as society learns, 
uh, and grows to learn, uh, there will be a widespread um, opposition to keeping these names on things. I think that that is a good thing. Uh, the, the alternative is how do we tell the more uh, comprehensive history? How do we have people learn it so we're not erasing it um, when we change all these names? And then if we do take down these monuments and change these names, do we replace them and how can we replace them? Or how do we exalt or recognize uh, or celebrate achievements in ways that don't uh, eliminate um, the tellings of some histories over others? Because when the McDonald debate was raging, and it was raging here in Hamilton, as it has in other areas as well over the last little while, that, that was one of the arguments that I heard from a number of people that called into our show or, or emailed us at that time, Emil, was, look, at this, this, this guy created, not by himself, but of course was one of the major architects in, in the creation of our country. A uh, very difficult process. Can we just throw that out the window and said, "Yeah, but he was a racist and uh, uh, and, and, and guilty of genocide." So forget all the the other stuff that he did. And my my response to that was, "No, you don't forget that, but you don't exclude the other things as well, because that's part of what the man was at the at the same time, and that's got to be part of what we have to remember about him." Is, is is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. If the symbol of memory that we're talking about now, statues and names on things. And those symbols are forged within this historical framework that only tells half the story, then we have to get rid of those and we have to forge new ones that allow for a comprehensive understanding of history that tell the story of nation building and colonial conquest and harm to indigenous people uh, that tell the stories of South Asian laborers in Canada, of Chinese head taxes, of Japanese internment, of chattel slavery and anti-black racism. Um, we have to have an ability to uh, oscillate between the past and the present in ways that help us understand and appreciate the violence of the past and what we can carry forward, that we can learn from. Those are contributions, uh, not things to always erase. But that's a again. That's a story of perception, isn't it? Uh, to go back to the idea of what you know, the, the the people who dominated, the ones that write the history of this, and that's what we we've been taught for so many years, mm -hmm. uh, and and we've got so many examples of that. I mean, Lou Real comes to mind as you were talking about that. I mean, you know, yeah. I, when I was going to grade school way back in the day, I mean, the, the lesson was Lou Real was a rebel, a, a revolutionary, and you know, and who committed a number of different crimes, and and McDonald, you know, made it his job to eventually execute him. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked to now that we know more about history. Uh, he was fighting for his people. I mean, fighting against the very things that McDonald was guilty of. Uh, now we know that, uh, and I think there's a different perspective on that. Uh, you, God, there are still some people I think that think Martin Luther King was just a radical, or, you know, uh, instead of a, a civil rights leader. It's really in the perception of those who are being taught, or those who are teaching it. I guess more to the point. I think so. Um, it is in us. It's in our belief systems. It's in the symbols around us that tell us the story, that remind us of that dominant story, that dominant narrative, reinforced in textbooks and course designs and education systems that were designed to tell that story, the dominant story. I think we have multiple examples now of a, of a resistant story, of a more comprehensive one that is being written 
by those who were made to be silent, those who were uh, historically erased. You know, I, I, I talk about my own history um, as a descendant of indentured laborers from Guyana. And my great-grandmother was born on a boat uh, that was a slave boat that was also used to carry indentured laborers from uh, India to the West Indies. Um, and on my grandfather's birth certificate, there's a boat registration number, my, grand- my great-grandmother's first name, and her place of origin is a boat because she was born on it, Temple, 1889. And the rest of it is erased. You know, and we come out of that history of erasure where I can't really locate any of my own history because no one's ever written it. All that is written is the story of the company and the ships and the conquest and the rule. Um, And I think we're at a moment where we're able to listen to more than that and able to ask for these other tellings of histories. Uh, of history from from those who are marginalized. Emil, has there been a paradigm shift societally for us to, to at least open our eyes to this? Uh, 25, 30 years ago, there were still voices that were indicating that this is the way that we should go, and, and they they were silenced, as a matter of fact. People just said, no, it's not going to happen. Forget about it. Uh, I, I'm getting the sense, and it may sound somewhat insignificant, but I still think in, in, in the context of what we're talking about, even the fact that NASCAR, which is is associated with an awful lot because a lot of the people there are southern United States residents getting rid of the, the rebel flag, the Confederate flag, which, of course, was the symbol of racism and, and slavery. Uh, to me, that's, that's a big move on their part because that wouldn't have happened 25 years ago. So do you, do you sense that we as a society are being more cognizant of this and saying we have, to, we have to explore this, we have to understand exactly what we've caused and what we're doing and what we're teaching each other? I'm hopeful that that's happening. Um, that's what I feel. But I also feel that this has happened before, and some of those conversations have been countered in a very powerful way by those who feel that um, the outcomes of colonial rule and conquest are good things, and that we're somehow all better off. And those, you know, reinvigorate um, memories of, of harm. Uh, to many, but right now I think we're at a moment, a historical moment, where people are done with that. They're fed up with it. They don't want to have these arguments over and over again. So they're just taking these signs down. They're taking the statues down. They don't want to be reminded, and they don't want others to be reminded. They want us to learn more. They want us to tell our histories in a in a different way. We're at a tipping point here, aren't we? I kind of hope so really hope so well actions are one thing uh, you know but uh, as you say the attitudinal shift that uh, i think is happening here too uh is uh, is incredible to watch and see how this is devol- evolving the way it is right now and uh, we can only imagine just how far this is going to go and maybe maybe rectify some of the things that we've been talking about over the last little while emil always a pleasure to have you on the program thank you so much for the time today i know we'll talk again soon no thanks for having me Take care. Emil Joseph, of course, uh, assistant professor in the School of Social Work at McMaster University. Uh, the petitions are up about McDonald and about uh, Dundas and so many others. And this is not just a, a Hamilton or a Canadian problem. It's it's international, uh, where there's been a, a very, uh, I think, honest realization and, and reevaluation of uh, some of the people that we considered heroes for generations. And uh, 
you know, we need to hear their stories and make a, a judgment about exactly what we're going to do. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a uh, another day for Parliament, such as it is, uh, on uh, Parliament Hill in Ottawa yesterday. Uh, you know, the virtual meetings. There are still some people uh, on Parliament Hill, and of course, a handful of them. Uh, and there was an important piece of legislation that was going to be discussed yesterday. Earlier in the week, you may remember, uh, the Prime Minister had talked about uh, revising uh, the CERB program and suggesting that there were going to be substantial penalties, frankly, of fines and possibly even jail time for those people that were abusing the system and dipping into the, uh, the pot when they really shouldn't be. Uh, well, it, it did not meet with a whole lot of support. Let me put it that way. Uh, this is what NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had to say. We can use our tax system. The tax system is, is designed to make sure those who can pay their fair share pay their fair share. That's the approach we should take, not a criminal justice approach, particularly in this moment when we're saying we need to stop incarcerating people. We need to stop police violence. We need to stop the system that's been systematically putting more and more racialized people in jail. Well, that was the uh, the mindset to carry the day because the uh, the motion by the Liberals was defeated. Uh, and uh, obviously there's not going to get any support for the Conservatives, but uh, the NDP and the Bloc uh, also had some problems with that. Uh, does this signal the end of the sense of cooperation that seemed to uh, rule the day with a lot of these virtual settings that was going on to deal with with uh, the COVID-19 crisis? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Peter Grafe, of course, who is a political science professor at McMaster University here in Hamilton. How are you doing this morning, Peter? Great, thanks. Good. No surprise yesterday that, uh, that the opposition party said it gave this a thumbs down? Yeah, not really. Uh, I mean, given the decision uh, in terms of uh, suspending Parliament and uh, simply running through committees, uh, they would have required uh, the unanimous consent of the opposition parties to, to bring forward this legislation. And uh, certainly the government hadn't done what was necessary to, to earn that support. Uh, and so, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, we were speaking the other week about the suspension of Parliament, and mm-hmm. you know, part of the cost of that to the Liberals is that they're unable to bring forward pieces of legislation uh, at least, you know, there's a capacity of, the, of any of the opposition parties to veto it, and uh, I think we're we're unlikely to see much success for them, given the Conservatives' position that Parliament should be sitting uh, to move forward with any legislation. Yeah, I want to get back into that, because that seemed to be a, a part of the conversation yesterday, and I think it's a very important part of the conversation. Uh, and, and I know that there are some, I've seen some editorial writers this morning, some of the papers I was reading, saying, well, this is the end, you know, more, no more of this uh, kumbaya, and let's all work together to, be, to, to defeat COVID. Uh, they're going to start playing politics again. But I think what override that is this was not a very good piece of legislation to begin with, was it? Uh, no, I mean, I think the Liberals uh, recognize uh, that as we move out of the, the moment of crisis, uh, it becomes harder to justify a certain number of pieces of, uh, of legislation, and particularly uh, for an important part of their voter base that returned them to power uh, you know, a year ago. Uh, are swing conservative liberal voters and people who probably have no problem with things like the CERB as a stopgap measure, but are also very concerned about the potential for fraud. And so I think it was important for the Liberals, and I think they win this a bit regardless of what happens, to signal a desire to get tough with fraud, um, because clearly it's a line that the the Conservatives could use very well in a future election, saying that the the Liberals spent like drunken sailors and they gave people money and they didn't really do enough to check up and make sure that people uh, weren't defrauding the system. Even if, you know, to date there's relatively limited evidence that there was widespread fraud and that in, you know, cases where people did get the the CERB uh, who maybe shouldn't have, you know, there's already been, I think, over 100,000 people who've started repaying, uh, you know, CERB that was received uh, 
again, you know, not within the within the rules. So, I mean, I guess when Mr. Singh was talking about it as a solution that could be done through taxation, I mean, that's part of, of how it happens in terms of people paying back in that means. But anyway, in terms of the politics of it, the Conservatives obviously want this as a stick to hit the Liberals, and the Liberals then want to act uh, to show that, no, they're taking the question of fraud seriously. Peter, how do these things get started? I mean, the, these rumors, these myths, uh, uh, for instance, in this case about fraud, it, it kind of reminded me of uh, uh, the Mike Harris days here in Ontario when Mike Harris became Premier back in the mid-1990s and decided to, 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 to well, the, one of the forms that he used was uh, to, in the way of budget cutting was this, these people on social services, what was it, like 38% of them, he says, are ripping off the system. They shouldn't really even be receiving it. And no no proof of any of that, but that's the number he gave, and uh, his followers just said, oh, yeah, he must be right. And we're hearing the same thing here. I've heard some outlandish numbers about the number of people that were defrauding the system. How would they know the system hasn't been in play that long? Yeah, and in fact, when you look at, uh, you know, rates of uh, fraud in different programs, uh, uh, you know, things like social assistance where people think it's rampant, uh, you know, the, the numbers are below 3%, in most yeah. cases below 1%. Um, you know, there are a number of cases of overpayments and people have to pay things back, but those are usually based on bureaucratic issues or issues where, you know, someone makes some money in a certain month and they report it, and as a result of reporting it in the next month they receive less, and, you know, that's a correction, but some people want to say that that's fraud. And so in the case of the curb, uh, and, you know, this was part, of, I think, of uh, Matthew Green's questioning of the minister yesterday was to say, you know, at the time it was rolled out, uh, even, you know, uh, members of the government were saying, re- apply regardless of your situation, it will all mm-hmm. be worked out afterwards. And so, in a situation like this, uh, you know, where uh, it's very confusing about unemployment insurance, you know, people might have had right to that, but was their employer actually going to lay them off in a way that they could then make a claim for, you know, employment insurance, maybe they should do the curve. Again, all these kinds of uh, people not really understanding or knowing or not being clear at the moment uh, what to do, and receiving mixed messages from um, uh, members of the government telling them, we'll just apply and it'll be worked out afterwards. Uh, I think that's what we're seeing at the moment with thousands of people uh, making voluntary repayments uh, as these things work their way out, uh, you know, working out questions where they may have received both EI or the curb, or they received the curb, but they didn't actually have access to it. So is that fraud? Uh, I don't think in this context you could call it fraud, uh, particularly where people... Uh, Again, honestly, when it was paid improperly, engage in repaying it. I mean, I think the more difficult situation is that you have people in tight financial uh, situations who may have received it uh, when they uh, didn't fully, uh, uh, you know, they they weren't fully uh, in line for it, now being asked to repay it, and that will create its own set of hardships in the case of uh, families where money is quite tight. But again, uh, it's a matter of finding a way of solving that problem so that people uh, can do what's right, as opposed to being in a situation where they face fines or potential jail time. And in a circumstance like that, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we had those conversations when the prime minister announced the program, and and I think there was probably a consensus. I think right across the country, well, except for Andrew Shear's office, I guess, Peter, uh, that yeah, let's get it out there because people need it right now. They've just lost their job. They don't know how they're going to make rent payments and things of this nature. But boy, if you don't cross all the, uh, the t's and dot all the i's before you put this stuff out there. Of course, there's going to be confusion, and, and you're right. We got we got confusing message from the government themselves, not just from from people that said, "I don't think I understand it," because they didn't understand it either. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it reflects that we have a, a, an income security system with a lot of holes in it, um, so that when you get in a situation where the economy comes to a crashing stop, as it did back in March, 
there's all people, all kinds of people who are out of work, but who don't actually have right to programs like employment insurance because they don't have enough hours in the work that they're doing. Uh, you know, they're self-employed in various ways. Uh, they're independent contractors. So there's a lot of people who are really not protected, and that's why we needed the CERB at the end of the day to ensure that we didn't have people uh, in really dire financial straits because their uh, source of uh, employment suddenly stopped. Um, so again, if we would had better systems in place before that so that people are protected from this, then maybe we wouldn't have had to invent something on the fly. But when you invent something on the fly, I suspect uh, you know, there's a need for, uh, again, uh, cases of blatant fraud uh, need to be dealt with as you know, cases of blatant fraud. But in most cases, it's a matter of inventing things on the fly. And not surprisingly, citizens get a bit trapped or caught up in things that aren't clear uh, or aren't delivered in an entirely reasonable way because, you know, they're new. <laughs> There's no education about how they apply or how they work. Uh, and the people who you, they might look to to give them advice are saying, well, just put an application and we'll sort it all out afterwards, which, again, is fine. But, uh, you know, if the sorting out afterwards puts these people in really difficult situations, uh, some of the blame, I think, has to be held by the political and bureaucratic leaders who didn't provide much uh, help at that moment. But, you know, when it comes to people that are defrauding government programs or, or taxation programs or whatever the case might be, that's an old chestnut that every political party likes to dig out from time to time, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's people at the upper end of the, the spectrum, you know, making a lot more money uh, that are, you know, hiding it in bank accounts offshore and all sorts of other things and not paying their fair share. And, and we rumble about that every now and then and then forget about it a couple of days later. But I, your point's well taken. Uh, the story that we saw that the number of people are already starting to repay it, that's not after the Prime Minister said he was going to start putting people in jail or, or finding them. They, they were just doing that because it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most people, uh, you know, want to do right by, I mean, in part because they're afraid of what will happen if they don't do right. But, you know, also they don't, you know, they, they aren't in it to try and uh, squeeze money uh, you know, it, that doesn't belong to them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I suspect we'll see a lot more of this. And, again, to the extent that it's also taxable, a lot of that money will be coming back yep. uh, when we come around to the next tax season. But, again, I mean, in politics, uh, the question of fraud uh, is one that's that's powerful um, because it's something we react to. Humans have a really sort of strong sense of fairness. And the idea that people are taking from the common pot uh, you know, in a manner that is, is improper, uh, you know, will excite people and make them vote one way or another. And I think, again, that's part of what's going on in this case with the Conservatives and the Liberals, with the Conservatives emphasizing this aspect of the fraud. Uh, now, the, the Liberals uh, saying, well, we're going to get tough on it, and no doubt they'll say, and look, the Conservatives prevented us from getting tough on it in the way they voted. Uh, but again, I think that's speaking to a particular uh, type of voter who has a psychology. I mean, most of us can be convinced of a variety of different things, and we can be convinced that it's a good thing that we made sure people had enough to get by in this moment of crisis. Uh, but there's many others who will change their mind when suddenly the idea is, well, yeah, but some people got it improperly. Now, I think it's going to play a lot in terms of whether people choose to vote liberal or conservative, uh, you know, in a number of writings in the next election. And so that's why we're seeing this really coming into politics these days. But on that point uh, about the vote yesterday and, and the opposition to that, uh, does this signal a sea change up there? I mean, let's face it, the NDP and the, and the bloc have been accused mostly by the Conservatives, but other observers as well, that, look, you guys are just going along with everything, and we sort of understand it because we're in a crisis situation in this country. But is this a, is this a marker now that they're going to be a lot more discerning about what the government's going to try to do or what they're going to be presenting? Well, I mean, I think... In a minority government situation, uh, it's always going to be a question of 
what the different parties can try and negotiate out of the government on the one hand, and on the other hand, who's going to have to hold the bag of having to support the government in a given moment. For a while, it was a bloc that was was propping up the Liberals. I think we've seen more recently that uh, they're happy to have given that job now to the NDP <laughs> playing that role. Um, so, I mean, I think we'll, I mean, we'll continue to see uh, we'll continue to see that. I mean, the, the liberal strategy in part has been to try and uh, put that aside uh, by suspending Parliament until uh, September. Uh, but I think now they're seeing, you know, the negative consequence of that is that at certain moments, in particular in a crisis, you have to act, and you have to act through bringing in legislation. And so to the extent that, uh, you know, the other opposition parties are unhappy with that decision to suspend Parliament, uh, you know, the Liberals are hamstrung, and so they may may come back and, and revisit their earlier deal with the NDP to have the kind of ex- extended uh, scrutiny of the government through the summer on, on the question of the crisis, but not actually to have Parliament proper sit. Well, and Mr. Singh seems to understand his position, too, and he's playing that card pretty well. I mean, a couple of the changes that the, the Liberals did make, the government did, on this program was at the request of the NDP, uh, you know, extensions of programs, enhancements, and things of this nature. So I, this the, the, the horse trading, I guess, that we had always anticipated was going to happen seems to have started already. Yeah, I mean, the NDP was in a very weak position after the last election, but, I mean, in the, in the last few months they can claim a number of wins, rather whether it was making the government promise to actually uh, step up what it was doing for people with disabilities, uh, you know, the question of lobbying the provinces to push for uh, paid sick days. I mean, there's a number mm-hmm. of things which I suspect in the next election they'll really underline as ways in which they made a difference in the minority parliament. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Have a great weekend. And you too. Take care. Peter Gray, of course, a political science professor at uh, McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.